The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Can I help you? No. I'm just bored. What are you working on? A paper. You happy? What's it about? Eugene V. Debs. You happy now? Who's Eugene V. Debs? Well, Jennifer, if you must know, Eugene V. Debs was a socialist who was arrested in 1917 for making a speech opposing American involvement in World War I. See, he claimed he was just exercising his right to free speech, but the Supreme Court, in a decision by Oliver Wendell Holmes, disagreed. They said that his speech was a clear and present danger to the country. Are you happy now? Now I'm happy. <laughs> Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 1st, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and if the opening clip didn't give you a hint, freedom of speech is the overriding theme of our show today. As the second half of the, and in, 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 in second half of today's show, we'll be taking a look at the public domain, copyright, internet freedom, and internet spam, all in the context of the new laws that will take effect on July 1st, exactly two months from today. And this is alarming and serious stuff, Robert. I kid you not. It's not a suggestion. It's not a proposal or a bill before Parliament awaiting further reading. This is about a set of laws passed in 2010 that are about to take effect in two months. And if you thought the College of Trades was something, wait till you you hear this. this. And we have some very interesting and bizarre bizarre copyright issues and lawsuits that have made it to the news lately that I want to talk about. And perhaps the most ominous thing is what's going to be happening with the federal anti-spam bill uh, that has already been passed and takes effect on July 1st. It's so outrageous, you have to wonder if the cure is worse than the disease. And we'll be talking about torrents and porn trolls and copyright trolls. But first, we've got a big news story coming up, don't we? Well, it's not being covered as well by the left liberal press as it is by some of the uh, the right-wing press out there, but you know that your freedom of speech is no longer guaranteed and protected by your government when you, as a politician, making a campaign speech during an election campaign, quote from a former prime minister, and are arrested on the spot on suspicion of religious or racial uh, harassment because of that quote. And this is exactly what happened to Paul Weston, chairman of the Liberty GB party, who, while standing for election to the European Parliament, was arrested on the steps of the uh, uh, Winchester Guild Hall for quoting Winston Churchill last week. The supposedly offending quote was from The River Wars, a book written by the young Winston Churchill in 1899 when he was a soldier fighting in the Sudan. This is the quote. How dreadful are the curses which Mohammedanism lays on its votaries. Besides the fanatical frenzy, which is as dangerous in a man as hydrophobia in a dog, there is this fearful, fatalistic apathy. The effects are apparent in many countries. Improvident habits, slovenly systems of agriculture, sluggish sluggish methods of commerce and insecurity of property exist wherever the followers of the prophet rule or live. A degraded sensualism deprives this life of its grace and refinement, the next of its dignity and sanctity. The fact that in Mohammedan law every woman must belong to some man as his absolute property, either as a child, a wife, or a concubine, must delay the final extinction of slavery until the faith of Islam has ceased to be a great power among men. Thousands become the brave and loyal soldiers of the faith. All known, all know how to die, but the influence of the religion paralyzes the social development of those who follow it. No stronger retrograde force exists in the world. Far from being moribund, Mohammedanism is a militant and proselytizing faith. So, and now we are joined on the line from England by the man who was arrested for making that quote on the streets, Mr. Paul Weston. Are you there, Paul? 
I am, Robert. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, thank you for uh, for coming on. Uh, can you tell us exactly what happened on the day that you were arrested for quoting Winston Churchill? Well, it was uh, it was in a place called Winchester, uh, which is part of the uh, southeast constituency for the EU election, and uh, so it was chosen specifically uh, uh, because of the campaign. And I stood on the steps of the Guildhall and uh, and suggested that people who live in Winchester are not necessarily uh, living next door to large Muslim communities, so probably don't know very much about it. So I thought I would just explain it via the words of Winston Churchill, but I didn't mention the fact, of course, that they were Winston Churchill's words. And the moment I started talking, uh, some woman uh, popped up and said, this is absolutely disgusting and racist, and probably got onto her telephone and called the police. About two minutes later, uh, the police turned up, told me that if I didn't stop doing what I was doing, uh, they would arrest me. I said, arrest me for what? And they said, we would arrest you for uh, 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 causing distress and concern to people who are, who are listening to you. And I said, well, I think that's ridiculous. I'm operating under, under a, a parliamentary campaign, and I don't care if people are distressed or concerned about it. You know, it is my democratic right to say it. And they said, if you continue saying it, we would arrest you. So I continued saying it, and they, uh, they arrested me, took me down to the police station, the initial arrest was uh, was failure uh, uh, to obey a dispersal notice, but then when they reviewed the stuff out of the police station, they then added, well, well they dropped the first charge and added the uh, racial and religious aggravation under uh, something called Section 4 of the Public Order Act for racially religious uh, aggravated intentional harassment, alarm, distress in words or in writing. And, of course, in, in writing was, was also the actual uh, script I had of the Churchill speech. So if Winston Churchill were alive today and he had published that book, The River Wars, he would be arrested? Uh, yes, I honestly think that he would, because because the a few years ago we had a terrible, uh, a terrible racist murder here where some poor black chap was killed by a gang of whites and somebody called uh, uh, Lord McPherson came up with a a definition of a racist incident. And this is what the whole problem in this country stems around. I'll, I'll read you out the definition. Uh, it, it will now encompass any incident which is perceived to be racist by the victim or any other person. Now, you know, anything can be perceived to be anything. So, so this really makes it completely wide open that even if you say something very, very uh, soft in terms of causing offence, if somebody perceives it to be racist, the police, because of this law, the police are duty-bound to arrest you and to prosecute you, which essentially means that freedom of speech is now completely finished in this country when it comes to race or religion. We have similar laws here in Canada under our Human Rights Commissions and Acts. and uh, Very we, similar. We use the word perceived as well, I believe. Um, it makes it a very subjective law. And, um, you know, back in the day, Winston Churchill is probably more famously known for that one speech, we'll fight on the beaches and oceans, we will never surrender. Well, it looks to me, in my editorializing opinion here, that Britain has surrendered 70 years after he made that speech. Do you think so? Uh, uh, yes, I'm quite convinced that we have. You know, we had this remarkable situation when when uh, Fusilier Lee Rigby was, was killed three months or so ago, and yes. uh, David Cameron said this has nothing to do with Islam. And Boris Johnson, the mayor of London, said this has nothing to do with Islam, even though these guys that did it were, were, were quoting the Quran as they, uh, as they saw the poor chap's head off. So, it, you know, it is this willful, total denial of the reality of Islam in this country. And it's either because they are very frightened of Islam, or it's because they simply don't want to go to the necessary trouble they would have to go to if they wanted to do anything about it. So either for a quiet life or cowardice, the establishment has, uh, has essentially uh, submitted before Islam. And that's what Islam means, isn't it? The word itself means submission. Uh, that, do you think that maybe the, uh, the whole issue here is not so much that 
your freedom of speech has been taken away, which is bad enough. It's the double standard, the hypocrisy of the progressives, the left, the people in uh, in the intelligentsia, in, in the establishment. Um, it, that's the issue that they treat with kid gloves. Islamists who call for the death of people and war in the streets of London while they arrest a peaceful man like yourself during an election during an election for pointing out the failings of their ideology the the hypocrisy to me is more of a germane issue uh, and that that the, the taking away of your freedom of speech seems to be just simply a symptom of this what i would call the true islamophobia they are the people who are afraid of the islamists would you would you agree yes i think you're absolutely right on that and you know i think one example of this is the uh, is the this craven attitude that uh, that the entire establishment has you know it's not just the politicians it's the bbc as well who constantly refer to islam as the religion of peace you know they never talk about any other religion as a religion of peace it's only the one which quite clearly isn't terribly peaceful and so it, it is it's rank hypocrisy and it's this also, it's the you know, the situation where if I went to a Muslim rally, surrounded by policemen, and there are Muslims there holding up placards saying, saying behead those who insult Islam and British police burn in hell, and I said to the policeman, I feel offended, distressed and concerned, and I perceive this to be a racial or, or, or religious incident, go and arrest that person. And from what I can gather... The reason that they had never arrested one of these people is because a senior police officer said, if we tried to arrest one, there would be a riot. So the police had submitted to Islam as well. It's rather Orwellian, isn't it? How has the uh, press coverage been for your arrest? Because to me, this is earth-shattering news that, that great, the once great Britain has now uh, surrendered to Islam. How has your press coverage been? Well, we got to, the BBC covered it, but not on the not on the television. They tucked it away on the website. The Daily Mail was the was the one that really covered it properly with a full quote from uh, from uh, Sir Winston Churchill. Uh, apart from that, most of the coverage, as I always thought was going to be the case, is in America and Canada, who seem to hold a, a great deal more reverence for uh, for Winston Churchill than anybody does in, in, in Churchill's own country, which is A, terribly sad, and B, a dreadful indictment of, of, of just how far this country has, has fallen since, uh, since his day. Yes, as a matter of fact, I would say that American Canada do have that reverence for Churchill, except for, of course, uh, the leader Obama, who took Churchill's bust out of his office. And then we had the rather humorous Mark Stein write an article on your arrest entitling it uh, Churchill's bust. <laughs> the double yes, you know. I saw that. Yeah, we're going to take a little he has break. Away with words, Mr. Stein, yeah. doesn't he? <laughs> He's great. Yes, we're going to take a little break here, Paul. I wonder if you can just hold on to the line for uh, just two minutes while we uh, take a break for a Freedom smile. Maybe we'll right back. Yep. Of course. Thank you. Welcome to Leland College. I am Ephraim Bronsky, and this is a freshman seminar in American government. If you are not enrolled in this course and are here by mistake. Well, then I suggest you leave now before you become too engrossed. <laughs> We're going to begin our studies with an examination of the free speech clause of the First Amendment. It reads, and I quote, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. No law. Did you hear that, Doug? No law. Don't look at me. I'm not going to make one. <laughs> the wording is quite unambiguous, and yet Congress has passed many laws over the years which restrict the individual's right to express himself. Is there an inconsistency here? Yes? Uh, yes, sir. It would, uh, it would appear that there is an inconsistency here, sir. What is your name, young man? Uh, Alex P. Keaton, sir. Uh, Mr. Keaton, I was merely posing a rhetorical question. I did not expect a response. <laughs> Nor did I want one. Oh, I'm, I didn't mean to respond. I, I was just up. <laughs> and as long as I'm up, can I get you something? <laughs> it, no, I'm fine.
Yeah, but let's pursue this. You said you felt there was an inconsistency between what's written in the Constitution and the fact that Congress has passed laws limiting free speech. Now, why do you feel that way? Is this a rhetorical question? No, this is a regular question. Well, uh, if, if, if the Constitution states that, that freedom of speech is an absolute right, then, uh, then Congress shouldn't be allowed to, to restrict it at all. Just simple as that. You would uh, legalize libel, slander. Well, no, no, certainly not. But you just said that you felt that free speech was an absolute right. Is it or isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, except for those things. What about incitement to riot? Uh, that too. And what about censorship of newspapers, book banning, treason? Uh, those are good. So there is no free speech, is there, Mr. Keaton? No, sir, not as far as I can tell. You feel you've wasted enough of the class's time yet? Yep, I think so. <laughs> I hope you were all paying uh, close attention to the comments of Mr. Keaton because they represent exactly the kind of narrow-minded, unsophisticated and simplistic approach to American government that with any luck, this class will help you to overcome. Nice work. <laughs> And welcome back. We're talking about free speech today on CHRW here in London, Ontario, and we're talking also with Paul Weston, who's in the other London in UK, I understand. Is that where you are, Paul, or are you in an, living in another town? Uh, uh, well, well, right now, I'm, uh, I'm down in Somerset. Oh, okay. But London is the uh, usual place, yeah. I see. Now, does, in Britain, what is the closest thing Britain has to the U.S. free speech law. What, w what would be the, the big law in Britain that would be your protector of free speech, or is there even such a law left? Well, I suppose you have to go back to uh, to the Bill of Rights, which, w which please don't ask me what year it was. 1689, <laughs> I believe, wasn't it, Paul? Quite, quite possibly. Yeah. Uh, or you go back uh, even further than that, and you uh, uh, you know you have to go back to Magna Carta. But but of course you know we don't have something set in stone as you do with uh, with your First Amendment, and I think we desperately need it not just here but all across Europe, which is experiencing exactly the same sort of things that uh, is happening to me at the moment. And we are all incredibly envious of. Uh, but the fact that you have this, I mean, I know that it's not 100%, because I, I now gather that, uh, that, that your chap who returned Winston Churchill's bust also sets the IRS onto people who says things that he doesn't like, but you know, at least you do have the First Amendment in principle. Well, uh, the Americans do. Yeah, easy. the Americans do. In Canada, we actually don't. We're very much more like Britain. But we do have a Constitution and a Bill of, uh, a sort of, uh, yeah. a Bill of Rights where our free speech is protected, sort of. We're <laughs> a little bit of a hybrid, aren't we? A bit of a hybrid, yeah. yes. Well, you know, it's just the... Uh, it, it is so sad about what happened mm. to, uh, to to England and Britain because, uh, you know, Canada, Australia, America, New Zealand, you know, that whole democratic sort of Anglosphere came from here. It came from our Magna Carta and common law and then was adapted, you know, to the countries that it went to. But it is, it is such a shame that the country that gave the civilized world uh, freedom of speech is now the first country to to really seriously uh, start to see it being curtailed. Did Paul? Did you expect to get arrested? Was this sort of an orchestration on your part for uh, media attention? I don't mean to subscribe uh, ulterior motives to your your passioned uh, fight against uh, Islam uh, is, is the Islamification in Britain. But I mean, you are a politician running for the European Parliament. Did you expect this? Um, I didn't fully expect it, no. I was aware that if you go out onto the street in this country and, and mention things that, uh, that, that uh, you are not allowed to mention, you run the very real risk of being arrested. And I think that when, you know, when it is done during an election campaign, because as someone pointed out the other day, Islam is not just a religion, it's a political ideology as well. So what they're basically saying is, is that during a political uh, campaign, other politicians are not allowed to criticize another political ideology, which I think is absolutely uh, terrifying, chilling, and totally undemocratic. And so, yes, I expected it. I, I, not completely, but, uh, but I was fully aware of it, and I was 
prepared for it. You have bail at the moment, and you're expected to go back to court uh, on Victoria Day, May 24th. Um, what happens after that? I understand that your prison sentence, if you are found guilty, could be as much as, what, two years? Yes, it's not, uh, it isn't just a simple uh, 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 crime, apparently, because they've tacked the aggravated part onto it as well. Uh, so, uh, which, uh, which, 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 which makes it worse, apparently. But I expect to, for the Crown Prosecution Service to either drop this, uh, because surely they are being affected by, by what is going on now. But if they don't, then, uh, then I presume I will go back on the 24th and I will be uh, rearrested and then, and then tried. Well, um, you will have your day in court. You have a, I would imagine that you have a great uh, way of uh, expressing yourself in court. Well, the nice thing about, about being in court, of course, is that you can say things in court which you cannot be prosecuted for, uh, which you, you know, outside the court you certainly would be. So, so if, they, if they did take me to court, I will, I, I will go through uh, with a very fine tooth comb uh, a great many things that Islam says and does, which uh, is exactly the reason that I'm trying to resist it on the outside at the moment. Are you getting any public support? Do you have any people behind you? I noticed that Bill Warner in the U.S. suggested that thousands of people should get together and, uh, you know, in a public square in England somewhere and recite Churchill's words together. Uh, is there, would, would that be a move that could be made, maybe to get the attention of the, the public authorities? We could, uh, we could try to organize that, but I... You know, I have to say, Robert, that that we are very uh, dimified over here. You know, people really are frightened. There is an atmosphere of fear, and and people, although they might want to do it, you know, we often have things where, I mean, for example, we had a, a our Liberty GB uh, radio host who who called um, a Muslim a a, a, a mendacious lying takia artist recently who was taken to court over it he got off but we tried to organize people to turn up and hundreds of people said they would go and then on the day you get maybe only 10 because there is a genuine fear you know the police come up they take photographs of the people there uh, employers can be notified and the next thing you, you you're you're pulled in and if you work for a state uh, for the state you have to comply with their sort of racial and religious requirements on how you behave. So it's very, you said it earlier on, Orwellian. It is very Orwellian in this country, and people sadly are very frightened. Again, that is the true Islamophobia, isn't it, is when people are deathly afraid to uh, speak their mind on well, a, in a country. Of, it, uh, is it cause thing. and effect, or is it the fact that you can't speak your mind that you're afraid? I, I, think, I think it's the free speech thing that comes first. Hmm. And and the fact that they're they're squashing it like this, it almost seems like you want to get into a court just so you can be heard from yes. from the way your laws are set up. Now, Paul, you've got a video of actually you standing on the steps of the Winchester Guild Hall, uh, being arrested. Where can people find your website and the video? Uh, if you if you go uh, Google, obviously the www.libertygb.org, and the video will be one of the first things that comes up on there. Uh, I presume that's the best place. Or, or you know, Gates of Vienna has it up. Uh, Bare Naked Islam has it up. It, it seems to be going out all over the place at the moment, which is good. Well, uh, Paul, we in Canada wish you well. We uh, applaud you, at least I do and Bob does, for your courage to stand up when others are deathly afraid to do so. I think that um, you're doing the right thing, and I wish you well, and I know that um, uh, you will prevail however this uh, works out in the end. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on, Robert. It's been a great privilege to speak to you again. I haven't seen you for years, and very, very nice to talk to you. Thanks again. Thank you, Paul. Have a great day. Best of luck.
Well, I'll tell you, that's really something, eh, Robert? It is, and and Paul was just alluding to the fact that he hasn't seen us in a couple Mm -hmm. of years, and that's because um, when he was in Toronto at the invitation of the International Free Press Society for a dinner event, I interviewed him, and um, this was, of course, when he was uh, the leader of the uh, the Freedom Party of Britain, and now he's the the chairman of the Liberty Mm -hmm. GB Party. So people can find that on our website as well, that video on your YouTube channel. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, if you think that Paul Weston has problems, his could pale against the problems every one of our listeners in Canada could be facing come July. First, Happy Canada Day. The day that freedom died on the internet? Maybe. Find out when we return. Uh, Mr. Bronski? Yes, Mr. Keith. Uh, I just wanted to say how much I've enjoyed your course. Uh, but I'm dropping it. Scheduling conflict? No, no, I, uh, I just don't think I'm capable of handling it. I mean, I got an F on my paper and all. I just think that I should stick to subjects where I'm on surer ground, you know? Where I know what I'm, I'm doing. Anyway, it, it, uh, it has been an honor to meet you, sir. Goodbye. Mr. Keaton? Uh, yes, sir? I'm just curious. Um, do you think you should have gone to prison? Who? Eugene Debs for uh, making that anti-war speech in 1917? Uh, well, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes thought so. He said that uh, Debs' speech posed a clear and present danger to the country. Um, why? But do you think so? Me? Yes, you. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, just my opinion, but... From what I read, it didn't seem that one anti-war speech could have hurt the country. Uh, goodbye. Mr. Keaton. This is not an easy room to leave. (laughs) What if word of that speech had spread, and uh, draftees by the millions swayed by Debs' words had decided to resist the draft? What if Debs had aroused the entire nation against the war? Yeah, but that didn't happen. I'm asking you to suppose it had. All right, okay, uh, suppose it had. If the majority of the people hold a certain opinion, then, then the government has an obligation to listen to them, right? Am I to believe that you feel Debs had a right to make that anti-war speech? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I mean, the guy was not blowing up factories. He made a speech. You know, he, he was presenting ideas. Ideas incite people. Of course, ideas incite people. Ideas are supposed to incite people. Isn't that the whole reason we have the First Amendment, so that people can be exposed to different ideas and then act on the ones they agree with? In other words, you feel that Deb's case was decided wrongly. You disagree with Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the most brilliant legal minds in history. No. Yes, you do. You just said so. You disagree with him. Right, I disagree with him. What do you want from me? What I want from you, Mr. Keaton, is for you to put some of that kind of analysis, some of that kind of meaningful insight into your essays. I want you to stand up for what you believe to be true, even if it conflicts with Oliver Wendell Holmes or with the framers of the Constitution, or even with me. I'll tell you one thing, Daddy. You sure got a swinging shop here. You got everything right here to cut a record with Jenny Lynn. I'm Floyd Burney. Floyd Burney, you know. What do you got for me? Well, come on, Dad, come on. They told me back at the highway that you're the music man for this little piece of nowhere here, and I know this is the place. Let's get with it. Come on. Look, Dad, don't hold out on me. Now, you got a good folk song. I'm ready to pay you top dollar. Ah, but it's got to be authentic, Dad. You know, I got enough of those jokers back home writing phonies. No. No songs. No, sir. Ah, ah, they got two of you already, right? Who was it? That Harlan Trio? No, I got it. The Pole River Boys, right? Listen, Dad, I'm telling you, they're going to steal you blind. Now, anything you got is only PD. You know, public domain. 
I'm trying to tell you, his dad, that you ain't got no rights, catch? And I guess that's the situation if you're in the public domain, and that's the big issue today. Copyright and spam. I think how government and business are working together to ruin the Internet for us, I think, Robert. Seems that they're turning our PCs into PCs, turning our personal computers into public computers and bringing every individual under public control. And, you know, I'm really at a loss to suggest that the news items I'm about to bring to our attention even require any further commentary. But the writing's on the wall. The government's taking over the Internet by regulating everyone, from ISP providers to a grandmother who sends a single email to her granddaughter. Believe it or not, your family relationship to the person you send an unsolicited email can determine whether you can be brought to the courts or not. And like I keep saying, I can't make this stuff up. And uh, unless the people who are reporting this to us in the business pages of the National Post and London Free Press are making this stuff up. This hasn't hit the major news headlines yet. It's still in the business sections. And uh, various related issues here. are going to start off with a lighter one. This is from David Canton's uh, London Free Press article, February 24th, Copyright Process, a Complex Action. Now, this is more in the line of what we understand to be copyright in December 23. Uh, 13, the Supreme Court of Canada confirmed that copyright applies to, pr- uh, to protect how an idea was expressed in a story, but not the idea behind the story, which is proper. The case of Sinar versus Robinson dealt with an author's claim that Sinar television show was so similar to an idea he pitched to them that it breached his copyright, and the court agreed. Claude Robinson spent years developing an educational children's television show, The Adventures of Robinson Curiosity. Interesting that his name's Robinson, too. I guess that's why he used it. Robinson drew his inspiration for this project from Daniel Defoe's novel Robinson Crusoe, as well as from his own life experiences. During the mid-'80s, Robinson and his company pitched the idea of this television show to Sinar Corporation. Several years later, he happened to watch a TV show entitled Robinson Sucro, S-U-C-R-O-E, a show that appeared to copy several aspects of his creation, The Adventures of Robinson Curiosity, the show he pitched years earlier. When they looked into it, they discovered that several parties who had been given access to his curiosity project were also involved in the production of the show that actually made it to television. So Robinson launched a copyright infringement case. The court had to determine what constituted part of the public domain versus what was the property of an individual that attracts copyright protection. So far, this all makes sense. Both shows were, after all, modeled after the novel Robinson Crusoe. This is what reminds me of the Sherlock Holmes copyright issue that we talked about a few shows back, mm-hmm. Robert. Kind of like that. The test to determine if copyright had been breached is whether the defendant copied a substantial amount of the author's work. In order to determine that, the features that were copied by Sinar appellants must be considered cumulatively in the context of the work taken as a whole. In other words, the test for infringement is not to tear the work apart piece by piece and only compare one element to one element, but to the whole thing. The court awarded damages, punitive damages and costs, totaling more than $2 million. But given the complexity and time involved in seeing this copyright action through to the Supreme Court of Canada, it has been suggested that Robinson is still behind fa- uh, financially. End quote. That was uh, David Canton's article. Now, I think if there's a lesson to be learned from this, it's that protecting your rights in a court of law is an extremely expensive process, so much so that any effort you know, that you take resulting in this, might, you might end up further behind than you started off with, right? So... Leave it to the private market to figure out ways to make this effort of copyright protection profitable, and here's where the fun begins. Shutting out the porn trolls, Christine Doby, National Post, uh, February 22nd. She writes, so-called copyright trolls have used U.S. courts to gain access to the identity of Internet users accused of illegally sharing work they won the rights to, in many cases, pornographic movies. The rights holders then send lawyers letters demanding the individual pay a settlement or face a pricey trip to court. David Feuer, director of the National Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic, which won the right to intervene in this case, said we were really concerned about the pornography trolls coming to Canada because they're all over the place in the U.S. And we thought a voltage, the company, was given the green light that would, uh, given the green light, that would open the floodgates. The courts really signaled that that's not going to happen in Canada. Well, that's kind of a good sign. 
the judge tried to strike a balance between the legitimate right of copyright holders to pursue legal remedies when their work is stolen and discouraging those looking to profit off copyright laws. That's interesting, uh-huh. said Michael Geist, who holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. These cases often rely on scaring ill-informed individuals into coughing up a settlement and foregoing all their legal rights, he said. Here we've got a court saying, we're not going to play that game. Justice Alto also wrote that where there's evidence the plaintiff is using the litigation process to coerce payments from, from uh, you know, intimidating individuals, the court will deny the motion to obtain the names. This is not the case in the U.S., so we're better off in, in this situation. Uh, the lawyer who represented the, the film company, James Zabaras, said his client is not a troll, but a legitimate movie producer trying to protect its work. Mr. Zabaras said small producers will be pleased with the decision because downloading has affected their ability to finance movies. Everyone wants free movies. They've had it for so long, there's a sense of entitlement. That's the side the public never wants to recognize, he said. There has to be a message sent that if you're downloading, there's a risk you're going to be identified. In the fall of 2012, the Canadian government updated the copyright laws, lowering the fine for infringement on a personal basis down to 5000 from 20000 Mr. Fewer and Mr. Geese said that if the process does result in settlements, they should be for far less than the statutory ma- maximum of 5000 and closer to the actual value of the downloaded material. That, that's kind of calming, isn't it, in a way? Yeah, 99 cents per song. (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever it might be. But then here's another one. Tory's digital bill raises fears over citizens' privacy because they're giving them a freer corporate hand. This is from Justin Ling, National Post, April 14. You might want to think twice about downloading a pirated copy of the new Captain America movie or any other film, thanks to a new federal piece of legislation that was quietly tabled in the Senate this week. Bill S-4, the Digital Privacy Act, was, was introduced in the upper chamber, and privacy experts are concerned that the bill is carte blanche for companies to share Canadians' personal information with the big media companies that are trying to crack down on copyright infringement. Once S-4 becomes law, the Personal Information Protection and Electronics Document Act, <laughs> which is uh, PIPEDA, yeah, P-I-P-E-D-A, will allow companies to share Canadians' information with other companies if they believe there has a breach, been a breach of agreement, a case of fraud. Now, is that allow or force? Uh, not, well, it says allow in this case. Now, I'm not sure what that means. But, he's, but here they're writing, in other words, uh, says digital advocacy group Open Media, pirating a copy of Game of Thrones onto your laptop will mean that HBO may soon have your number. That's what it means. Uh-huh. All they have to do is call up your internet service provider and ask for the information of each user who has ignored their copyright. The practice began in the United States where companies, unflatteringly referred to as copyright trolls, have issued mass mailings to users who pirate copyright material. The letters range from cease and desist to notices of legal action and more and more commonly, demands for reparation. In the U.S., companies have been known to seek as much as U.S. $75,000 or more for a single violation. David Christopher, communications manager of Open Media, says it's a dangerous precedent. It also opens the door to telecom firms handing our private data to U.S.-style copyright trolls without any court order or judicial oversight, he says. Worst of all, we'd never know when we'd been a victim of these privacy breaches as the disclosures would be kept secret. It was thought that the practice would be difficult to replicate in Canada after a federal court ruled that media companies shouldn't be harassing Canadians who have not been found guilty of a crime. The case, involving U.S. voltage pictures, which is the one we just talked about, demanded that Ontario-based internet provider Tech Savvy provide the ISP addresses of its users who downloaded big-budget films without paying. The small internet provider resisted. The judge ordered the Canadian company to cough up its users' information, but warned Voltage not to abuse it. Bill S-4 has the potential to make that moot as firms could simply exchange the information secretly without ever having to come before a judge. Canadians would be none the wiser. The Digital Privacy Act doesn't just affect those who want to get a copy of the new Lady Gaga album without shelling out $9.99 on iTunes. Coupled with the federal government's new cyberbullying bill, it spells the return of many of those investigative powers sought by the Harper government in Bill C-30, which was ultimately killed amid public outcry. 
The cyberbullying bill, the Protecting Canadians from Online Crime Act, also amends Pipidida to add immunity immunity here for any corporation that shares users' private data with the government for whatever reason. For whatever reason. The government will not need a warrant to ask for the information and companies will be immune from civil or criminal liability when they provide it. There you go. One law for you, one law for me, another law for him, and these three laws for Mary. That's where we're at with this. There is no longer an objective rule of law in this country. And if you think that's an overstatement, well, hold on to your hat for what you'll be hearing in our final quarter of the show after this break. What's your name, honey? Mary... Mary Rachel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's a lovely name. Lovely name. Lovely song. How's it go again? That song is secret. It belongs to somebody. It can't belong to anybody. Nobody can buy it. It's public domain. Who got to you? They made me promise not to sing it anymore. Oh, they did, huh? Um, who was that made you promise not to sing it again? The Rayford brothers. Rayfords. Rayford. Yeah, yeah, I know them. Sure, they work out of Chattanooga. The older guy's a short one, plays vibes. And... Nah, 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 nah. It's the Ray Tones. Rayfords. The Rayfords? Let me make it plain to you, honey, so you'll understand. Now, I need that song. I don't know what kind of an act those Rayford brothers got, but that song was meant for me, and I need it. You understand? Now, what do you want for it? But it belongs to somebody else. Now, buy it. What do you want? Fifty bucks? A hundred? Well, what do you want? A percentage? It can't be bought. Not that way. (laughs) Honey, anything can be bought. It's a buyer's market with a price tag on everything. All you gotta know is just how to find the tag. you in custody after that affair on the Rigel mining planet. Ah, Yes. Well, I organized a technical information service, uh, bringing modern industrial techniques to backward planets, making available certain valuable patents to struggling young civilizations throughout the galaxy. Did you pay royalties to the owners of those patents? Uh, Actually, Kirk, as a defender of the free enterprise system, I found myself in a in a rather ambiguous conflict as a matter of principle. He did not pay royalties. Knowledge, sir, should be free to all. Who caught you? That, sir, is an outrageous assumption. Yes, who caught you? I... I, I sold the Denebians uh, all the rights to a Vulcan fuel synthesizer. And the Denebians contacted the Vulcans? How'd you know? That's what I would have done. Uh, it's typical police mentality. They've got no sense of humor. They arrested me. Oh, I find that shocking. Worse than that, do you know what the penalty of a fraud is on Denim 5? The guilty party has his choice. Death by electrocution, death by gas, death by phaser, death by hanging. The key word in your entire peroration, Mr. Spark, was... I like what he says there. As a supporter of the free enterprise system, I found myself in a rather ambiguous conflict on a matter of principle. (laughs) Very funny stuff. This isn't very funny. This is alarming and serious stuff. This is not a suggestion, a proposal, or a bill before Parliament awaiting further reading. It is about a set of laws passed in 2010 that are going to take effect on July 1st. And you need to know about them, even if you're not in business, if you're just online communicating with anyone. This is unbelievable, Robert. Anti-spam bill impact will be immense, writes David Canton, TechWatch. London Free Press, February 10th. The Canadian Anti-Spam Act comes into force July 1st. If you think it won't affect your business, or you're not not for profit because you don't send mass emails trying to sell random products, you would be wrong. 
It defines spam. The Act calls it Commercial Electronic Message, CEM, so broadly that it will affect how most organizations communicate. The definition goes far beyond what the average person would consider spam. It then layers on a series of complex exceptions and implied consents that allows commercial electronic messages to be sent in certain in circumstances. The consent, by the way, you oh. have to email them to get their consent, but you're not allowed to do that. Well, I haven't got to that point. Oh, yet. sorry. That's right. the gun. <laughs> and volume is irrelevant, okay? One email sent to one person can be spam, and listen to this, can subject the sender to a fine of up to 10 million dollars. That sounds like Dr. Evil with his pinky up it, to his it's face. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Starting in 2017, remedies will include a private right of action, the right of recipients to sue the sender, that allows for the payment of statutory damages. In other words, there will be no need to prove actual damages were suffered from receiving a message, a single message. So, uh, I, I can't get my head around this. If I send a message an email, a single email to one recipient, let's say it's accidental, uh, you know, asking them to, uh, you know, check this out. Uh, there's a sale yeah, on over you could be in it. trouble. If they didn't want it, you're in deep and trouble. And I could, I could be fined $10 million. As an individual, no, only $1 million. You're getting oh, oh, easy. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay. This is for corporations yeah. and organizations. Oh, I can handle a million, but 10 But listen to this. Depending on the nature of the message and the relationship between the sender and recipients, some commercial electronic messages can be sent without any conditions. Some require an unsubscribe mechanism, and some can't be sent at all. Some things worth noting. Directors and officers can be personally liable if they participate or acquiesce to violations under the Act. Charities benefit from some exemptions, but the Act still applies to things they do. Commercial electronic messages are defined broadly to include more than email, such as social media messaging tools. The onus of proof is on the sender, meaning that the sender must track and document compliance of an individual recipient on an individual recipient basis in order to defend himself from alleged violations. Consents to receive commercial electronic messages must be obtained in specific ways and by dis disclosing specific information. Consents you already have might or might not be su sufficient. They might grandfather them in or they might not. And sending an email to request consent is itself considered uh, spam. There you go. Now, how bizarre is that? You can't even ask someone to obtain consent without your asking them being a violation of the law that demands that you obtain that consent. <laughs> it's so stupid. Given the complexity of the Canadian Anti-Spam Act and its consequences, business and non-profit cannot afford to ignore this. Then there's Drew Hasselbach's legal post, uh, Dear Uncle, No More Spam, written December 11th. It's official. As of July 1st, your sister or your uncle cannot send you spam. The family relationship exemption, married partners and children can send you spam, siblings and other relatives can't, is one of the many regulations the federal government finally introduced to guide the enforcement of Canada's anti-spam laws. The law, which Blake, Castles and Graydon describes as one of the most stringent anti-spam regimes in the world, requires, regulates spam, or as it is legally known, uh, commercial electronic messages, and Parliament passed the legislation in 2010. Of course, we know that. They all kick in July 1st. The new regime promises to have a significant negative impact on many businesses that have, have come to rely on electronic marketing, says David Elder of Strikeman LLP. A perfect example of the regulatory complexity is the government's efforts to decide how broadly to extend an exemption for unsolicited messages sent between family members. The government grappled over what family means, siblings, parents, aunts, cousins, etc. The government narrowed the definition of family relationship to include only individuals related through marriage, a common law partnership, or a legal parent-child relationship, a note by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell explains. This definition no longer uh, uh, no longer for CMs to be sent, oh sorry, no longer allows CMs to be sent between siblings or between relatives such as aunts and uncles to nieces and nephews without complying first with CASL. So I guess if you sent uh, your niece or nephew a thing saying, look at uh, Wilco or, or, you know, some company has a, has a sale on here, <laughs> if they didn't want the message, oh, I'm going to sue you for a million dollars, uncle. I mean, it's just, it's just insane. This is so over the top, uh, it sounds almost American. It, it <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, 
It'll apply to all commercial electronic messages sent from or accessed in Canada, including emails, messages sent to social networking accounts, and texts. The delay for computer programs, because they're talking about them, you know, those computer programs that embed themselves and give you little updates, recognizes the problem in getting those aligned with the law. The legal question is whether the act of installing some computer programs automatically grants a software developer permission to send, to send the user messages. Organizers may wish to consider whether their disclosure and opt-out regarding cookies and other similar technologies are a sufficient way to, de to deal with the consent issue, right? He says there's a lot at stake here for marketers. The law introduces significant administrative monetary penalties, or AMPS. they got a, an <laughs> acronym for everything. For, everything. <laughs> for those who violate the law, up to $10 million for corporations, $1 million for individuals. And here's a kicker. Guess who's going to enforce it? Three government agencies. The CRTC, which is supposed to be a broadcast regulator, uh -huh. was never they, they always told us they'd never censor, and they started censoring, and they said they'd never expand beyond broadcast, now they're getting in the internet. And the Competition Bureau and the Office of the Privacy Commissioner. I think three regulatory bodies I could do without. And you know, Robert, I don't know, in this irrational online environment, I see only two possibilities for the internet in the future. It's either going to be fascism and censorship and state control over private communications entirely, or even with such laws in place, and maybe because of them, it'll be total anarchy. Total anarchy. Like you said, there's no way to enforce these laws. Well, right? you know, there's an al another alternative there, and that is people will simply go back to the way it was just 30 years ago before the personal computer. I mean, half of your life, Bob, was spent without a computer. Twenty first 25 years of mine was without a computer. No internet. Didn't exist. Well, you know, they're, they're treating the home computer now just because you can get online, and this is a way to control you and control opinion and do things like what they're doing to Paul Weston uh -huh. um, by treating you as a broadcaster. Right? Yeah. You're no longer, uh, it's not just private communication. As long as somebody else can, they, they haven't, they're not putting it in those words and they would never say it that way. It's not like you sharing a torrent file with me, uh, you know, it's the same way that you would um, uh, let me borrow your album, right? Or something like that and I copy it. Uh, this is, oh, because you did it on the internet? Now that's $10 million fine for you. That's right. Yeah, I I, I'm just sitting here shaking my head and I can't believe this. I want to talk about this a lot more in the future as we start seeing it manifest itself because I, I can see this becoming a big Why issue. Why isn't once it, this on the front page? Because it, it's not July 1st yet. We always wait till it, till it's over and, it, and the train hits us before we look down the track to see what was coming. Oh, I see the right. newspapers want to create a panic. Well, they're not, they've been writing about this, but only in the business yeah. pages, right? Because it, it, uh, that's who's going to be affected first. Once the consumer gets hit, they will always be the last. So, I guess if you're listening to our show on air, you don't have to worry about the CRTC. Just CHRW, our broadcaster, does. But if you're listening to our show online after July 1st, then you fall under the CRTC regulations, too. You know, so welcome to the broadcast world of state control and idea suppression. It's only going to get worse before it gets better, because our rulers and regulators are doing it all on purpose. It's not just something that's happening to us, it's being done to us. Without our consent, I might add, Robert. How's that for the ultimate double standard? We hope you'll consent to tune in to our show next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Hey, 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 hey. You mind? I can't find any of my new school supplies, Alex. Did you take my scissors? Your scissors? <laughs> Jennifer, as of today, I'm a freshman in college. In college, we deal in the realm of ideas, of theories, of, of, of abstract concepts. We work not with our hands, but with our minds. <laughs> Jennifer, I can assure you, I have absolutely no use for your scissors. Okay, then give me back my paste. <laughs> I need that. <laughs>